assurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Lord, we pray that you would grant to us that we might see your hand at work, even though we don't see how you've caused things to come about. Would you grant to us faith to believe this good news that we might grow in our life with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we have some aspiring pianists in our family, and so recently I got to watch a documentary about the Steinway and Sons Piano Company. We were watching to see how a piano is made, and uh, our aspiring pianists eventually faded off into other activities, but I watched it all the way through. (laughs) And it was a fascinating documentary to me, a former engineer, to see how things are made, and the documentary showed the making of a nine-foot grand piano, one of the, the, the preeminent and great musical instruments on the face of the earth. And the making of this piano at Steinway & Sons takes a year. It takes them a whole year to make this piano. And this documentary showed how it goes through the, the meticulous process of all these specialized skilled laborers doing their part to construct this piano from the wood and the materials that are used. And in the end, it's a, an instrument that's made up of over 12,000 individual parts. And once it is that, finely tuned as it is, it costs fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 or more It's a piano. And once it's done, it will do something absolutely astonishing all by itself. It will sit quietly in a room and not make a sound all by itself. It won't make a sound until the musician comes and sits down and puts fingers to keys. It's an instrument. It's an avenue of taking you from here to there. Without it, you could never enter into the the beauty of music, a world that no one has ever seen, but that everyone has heard, a world that you can't hold in your hands, but you can feel it in your soul, a world to which you can go only with an instrument at the hands of a master playing it. Gospel faith, likewise, is an instrument. It's an instrument which in the hands of the Master will take you to a world that deep in your soul you know exists. 
Gospel faith is an instrument which, in the hands of God, takes you to what the Bible calls justification. That great exchange of the gospel, the great exchange in which God credits your sin to himself and credits his righteousness to you. The great exchange. And this you receive, how? By faith. This faith is what these Hebrew Christians receiving this letter needed so that they would not, as he says, shrink back from what stood before them. And it's this gospel faith that you and I need if we are to make sense of the reality in which we live. This gospel faith consists of three essential elements, and it comes from three powerful words, and it is for countless ordinary people. Faith, you know, is, I'll put it in quotes, faith is a very popular thing in our day and age. It's, a, it's actually a very admirable thing. And if you have faith, people will admire you for it as long as, as long as it doesn't trump science and as long as it remains purely subjective. As long as it fits into those two categories, then people will admire Anyone in the world will admire that you're a person of faith. But gospel faith violates both of those things. Gospel faith is not just casual acceptance of the way that things are. Gospel faith is not unrealistic unrealistic expectations for what you hope might be. Gospel faith is not the ability to imagine things that don't exist. And gospel faith is not the passive letting go of some things and letting other things. Gospel faith is none of those things. 500 years ago, when the Protestant Reformation began to take hold, the leading theologians of the Reformation, trying to clarify biblical theology and and some of the particular elements to it, faith in particular, noticed that there were three essential elements to saving faith, to gospel faith, and and they put Latin words to them. That's what they spoke at the time. And it, it sounds much smarter. I'm not so smart as they were. I don't know Latin. But if I use the words, you might think I'm smarter than I am. So, notitia was the first one. They, they, they said the first element of faith is notitia. That is the Latin word for uh, news or to notice. Knowledge or understanding. And then there's a census. To assent or to agree with something. And the third one is fiducia, or fiducia, however people pronounce it in different ways, which is a word from which we get the word fidelity, or trust, or assurance. And those are the three essential elements that the Reformers saw. This is what makes up gospel faith. And depending on the Bible translation you have in front of you that you might be looking at, there's some interchange among those words, but that's really okay. Because they all are tied deeply together in a process that leads to gospel faith. And this writer gives them, I think in in reverse order here, the first one is understanding. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by God. The word that he uses here is the Greek word noeo, noeo, understanding. Noeo is a word that means to perceive or to think or to know. Theologians talk about 
various effects of sin and how it affects different parts of you. One of those is the noetic effects of sin. That is how the fall, your brokenness, how sin affects your mind and your ability to think. Sin affects your intellect, believe it or not. And the noetic effects of sin describe that. Now, when the Bible calls you to believe, when the Bible calls you to gospel faith, it calls you to observe, to think, and to understand, to know something. Now, this is something that people, even Christians, don't associate with faith. And that's a mistake. That's a mistake. By faith, we understand. By faith, we know. Noeo. By faith, we perceive and think and observe what's around us. Now, even a scientist, of course, does this. Even a scientist begins his work by observing, by perceiving. And he begins with a theory to explain what it is that he sees. He doesn't really know what's happening that he sees and and why it's happening. And so he begins with a theory to explain it. And then he seeks to support it. I was an engineer before I was a pastor. And one of the things that I did with a natural gas pipeline company was sound pollution testing. We would go out to some of the facilities that we owned. And when a neighbor... In the countryside, these places were usually out in the countryside, when a neighbor complained that that compressor station, that facility is too loud, it had to to fit within certain sound guidelines that the Environmental Protection Agency required of it. When a neighbor complained, that place is too loud, you need to fix it, we would go out there and take sound measurements all around. And it was very confusing sometimes because sound is a very tricky element of physics. And so we would go two miles down the road to this person's property and measure the sound, and we would hear it. We would observe, yeah, I can hear the compressor. You're right, I can hear it down the the road or through the hills there, and I'm not sure why because I can't even see it. And so we would have to come up with theories about why is it that we observe what we're observing. I know I can hear it, but I don't know why. And so this is what a scientist does. He begins to make theories to explain it. And so a scientist might look at this passage of Scripture and say, it's not by faith we understand the universe was created by God, but rather it's by the scientific method I understand that the universe was formed by the process of evolution. That's more the case of our world today, isn't it? You know that. But such a person in saying that is not really being honest, or at least they're not being completely self-aware. Because they're making certain presumptions upon what they see. They're coming into it with a certain premise, which might be, well, I know that there's no such thing as the supernatural. Therefore, but you can't prove that. No one can prove that there's no such thing as the supernatural. Everyone comes into such observations with faith commitments. And so he says, by faith we understand, we know that the universe was created. Now, it's not gospel faith to be influenced by the world around us and say, well, despite the science and despite the evidence that I hear about in the world, I still believe that God created. That's not gospel faith. Gospel faith rather says, based on what I observe and know and understand, the only thing that could explain this is that God created it. That's what gospel faith says. 
from understanding. The second one is conviction, though. He, he goes on in the previous verse. He says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Another Greek word here is elenkus, which means proof, or something that has been pro- shown to be proven. And so I'm convicted of it. I'm persuaded. Based on what I know, I'm persuaded. I'm convicted of what I don't see, he says. Conviction of things not seen. Now, there's another important word in this little verse. Things. It's a kind of a throwaway word that we use for almost everything, right? But the word that he uses here is pragmaton. The conviction of the pragmaton that I don't see. Pragmatic. Something of substance. Something that is that actually happened. An event. An occurrence. Something that has something to it. I'm convinced of the things that happened that I can't see. This is the next step in gospel faith. And this is why we do things as a church, as Christians, like recite the Apostles' Creed together. We say things like, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I believe that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I believe that He was born of the Virgin Mary. I believe. I believe these things, even though I can't see them, I'm convinced. I'm convicted of this truth. Therefore, I'm going to act on it. This is the next step in gospel faith. I'm convinced, I'm convicted of the things that I don't see. But even with understanding and conviction, and many people have those things, we all do at some point, you're not quite there yet because the demons, Scripture tells us that the demons themselves, they know, they understand, and they're convicted, they're persuaded, but they don't have the third step. Even the, the demons, they know, they believe, and they shudder, but they're not assured. Assurance is the next step of gospel faith. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The Greek word is hypostasis. Hypostasis, meaning the substance or the firmness of something, something that exists, something that is for real, that I have confidence in it, so much so that an application you can make of it is that I'm, I'm willing to commit to this thing. Commitment is, is where that takes you. Gospel faith is not just knowing and understanding to the point of conviction and persuasion. Rather, it's, that it's those things taken to the point of, of assurance, taken to the point of commitment. I'm willing to stand on the substance or the firmness of this thing. I'm willing to commit myself to it. And this is where the world becomes skeptical, I think, of gospel faith. This is where the world begins to say, okay, but that's blind. The other one already said you can't see it, and now you're going to commit to it? That's just blind faith. But the fact is that the world does this too. Everybody does this. The only qualification you have to have to do this is to be a human being. Everybody does this. At some point, you have to commit to what you're persuaded about. Most people, I think, who disbelieve, who don't believe the gospel, do so not because they've thought clearly about it, but rather because they're intimidated by the world around them. Because what does the world say about gospel faith? It says, well, I'm glad that you've got what you want. Faith is kind of a crutch, isn't it? 
Faith is for weak-minded people. Faith is for the unscientific among us. You know those faith types over there, but we do science over here. Faith is for the, the unintelligent among us. So the, the world intimidates those who would believe, but the world doesn't think clearly about it. Because all it takes is a, a beginning logic class to recognize what those arguments are. Fallacies. To make an argument like saying, gospel, well, faith, that's just that's a crutch, but I'm glad you have it. That's, an, that's what a, a, an elementary logician would call an ad hominem argument or fallacy, which it means against the man. Basically what it means is mudslinging. Let me throw some mud on you and make you look bad, and then we can just discount you and forget about you. Politicians do it all the time. We do it ourselves to each other. We, we do it in our own minds about each other. And it's illogical. It's an argument out of fear because we're afraid. That's what someone might do if they want to avoid gospel faith. But gospel faith consists of those three essential elements. And gospel faith comes from three powerful words. Now, I realize that if you're looking at your outline that's in the back of the bulletin, maybe you've already thought about this. Jan pointed it out to me on Friday. She said, it says three powerful words, but there are only two there. What's the deal? It's not a mistake. The outline doesn't show the three because you already heard them a while ago. Jeff Murray read them to you. Let there be. Genesis chapter 1. The first words that show up in quotations in your Bible. Let there be. God said, let there be light. And there was light. Let there be an expanse above the waters, and there was a sky. Let there be stars in the heavens, and there were. Let there be creatures in the sea and on the ground, and there were. Let there be. So what does he say in verse 3? By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, what you do see was made from what you don't see because God said, let there be. This writer to the Hebrews, this pastor who's writing this letter to them is a good pastor because he knows what these people in their circumstance need and he knows where to go to get it to them. Basically, here he says to them, you need faith to believe what God is doing so that you can face what's before you. So, let me take you back to the very beginning and remind you that you can't even understand your own existence without faith. Because of three powerful words, faith is inevitable. It is unavoidable. You can't avoid it. Maybe in the past week or so you heard about the, the dust-up on Twitter that Richard Dawkins caused. Maybe you know of Richard Dawkins. He's a, a contemporary, popular, increasingly popular atheist academic uh, from England. And someone had posted a, a question, a, an ethical dilemma about, about um, childbirth and a Down syndrome baby. And I'm not sure if I could bring a Down syndrome baby into the world if I knew that I was pregnant with a Down syndrome baby. And Richard Dawkins' response was, well, it would be immoral to bring a Down syndrome baby into the world if you have a choice 
in the matter. Of course, that caused all kinds of a storm of dust-up of, of Twitter responses and, and on the Internet of people responding to that. And then he followed up to those who took offense in particular because they know and love someone who has Down syndrome, and they really took offense to his words. And he responded. He didn't really make it much better. He said, you know, I, I sympathize with you. If, if you know someone who has Down syndrome, you know them, you love them, that's fine. But to take such offense because of that, is to make an emotional point, not a logical one. It's not what you say to somebody in that moment, is it? And then finally, he explained himself. He said, you know, my own personal philosophy is based on a desire to increase happiness and to reduce suffering in the world. Now, what you have to understand as a Christian is gospel faith calls you to think. Remember that? to understand, to observe. And when you hear words like this coming from anybody, you have to think about it. And when you do, what you see is this. For him to even call something immoral is an enormous faith statement. You can't use that word if you're an atheist. If you don't believe that God exists, the word moral or immoral doesn't exist either for you. You can't use that word. If you don't believe that God exists, then the word happiness is just a relative matter. And maybe he wants happiness. I'm glad he wants happiness and to reduce suffering. But so what? Somebody else wants to increase suffering and reduce happiness. They're the same. In that world, it makes no sense. It's purely illogical. In order to live the worldview that he does, and to his credit, he takes it to its logical end. And its logical end is that it makes no sense. He has to borrow words that don't belong to him. He has to, as it were, another theologian said, he has to climb into the lap of his daddy in order to slap him in the face. He couldn't reach his face if he couldn't climb into his lap. And this is the inevitable nature of faith. It's not so much faith as it is presumption. You can't even assert a statement of any kind without taking steps of faith. You simply can't because there is something bigger than you. Faith is inevitable because you can't explain your own existence even without appealing to something greater. And because of those three powerful words, faith is also eminently practical. Okay, here's where that process begins to take shape. The process from notitia to ascensus to fiducia. The process from understanding to conviction to assurance. For example, about a year and a half ago, I had ankle surgery. It wasn't major. It was a an arthroscopic process to get rid of a a bone chip in my ankle. But that's kind of a big deal, okay? Especially if somebody I don't even know is going to do it. So what I did was exactly what you would do. I began to gather some information. And I started with my doctor, who I had sort of a relationship with over a few years. I kind of knew him and trusted him. And he recommended a couple of of uh, doctors to do this work, you know, go and visit these guys and see what you think about them. And so I went to visit 
one of them, and I met with him, and then I went and met with the other one to get a second opinion. And Well, they both seemed fine. They had credentials on the wall. I mean, of course, the doctor's going to have that thing, the diploma up there and all the stuff on the wall so that you can see it. Because why? He wants you to have faith in him because you need to have faith in him. Right? I'm gathering information. I'm trying to understand. Finally, I eliminate one of them in favor of the other one. I got to keep the other one in part because a high school friend of mine works in his practice. Okay, I know this guy from high school, and he wouldn't work there if it wasn't a good place. This guy's going to operate on my ankle. I need to trust him. And so I made a decision. I came to some conviction and persuasion about who should do this. And I finally, after meeting with him a second time, and he explained the procedure to me, we're going to put you to sleep. We're going to put a needle in your arm. You're going to go under, and the next thing you know, you're going to wake up, and it's all going to be done. We're going to do this to your ankle. I'm going to make an incision here, and I'm going to go in with these instruments into your ankle, and I'm going to remove this bone chip. It's not something I'd want to do at home, right? But I was persuaded that he could do it, and so I committed myself into his hands. And even at the moment of laying on the gurney in the operating room, another person, an assistant of his, an anesthesiologist actually, who I hadn't met with, was putting a needle in my arm and saying, in a moment you're going to feel some burning, and then the next thing you know, somebody's going to wake you up and offer you something to drink. Well, he was right. I fell right asleep. This person I didn't know putting a needle in my arm. I had lots of faith in that one. And then I woke up. I mean, it was a second later I woke up, somebody offering me a cracker and something to drink. For all I knew, this doctor in whom I had placed my life hadn't just fixed my ankle, but maybe he had barred one of my kidneys because I didn't know. (laughs) Faith is eminently practical. And even then, the doctor said, you're not really going to know for sure how your ankle heals until about six months later. Six months later, I knew, and it it worked. But I didn't really know for sure. You can't totally know anything except for mathematical equations, and this is part of our problem in life, in practice. This applies to marriage, doesn't it? John mentioned a couple of marriages earlier. One of them is happening today, and one of them just become engaged this weekend. You know, in marriage, you've you've met somebody. You you thought, wow, they look nice or whatever, and they are nice, and... And so you begin a relationship, and you date for a while, and, and you begin to get to know them. And over the course of time, you kind of begin to put the pieces together. You're gathering knowledge. You have some mutual friends together. Or you meet their friends, and they seem fine. And then you meet their parents, their family, and so on. You're gathering information, and you're persuaded, this person is somebody that I could spend my life with. And then you get engaged, and that's a level of commitment. But then the, the wedding day comes, and you say, I do. But you don't know, do you? I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now, 35 years from now, 50 years from now. You don't know. When, I, when we got married, I remember our pastor who married us said, you know, what happens if on your honeymoon you're in a car wreck and one of you ends up a paraplegic in a wheelchair for the rest of your life? Are you still going to love them? I see Annie laughing back there. You're thinking about that. (laughs) You don't know, do you? At some point, you have to commit yourself into the hands of the one you love. That's the nature of life. 
not only is it inevitable, but it is eminently practical. You know, the the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has faith and the other doesn't. It is not that. Because they both do. The difference is in the object of their faith. In what do you have faith? One of them has faith, believes in the God who spoke the powerful words. The other one has faith, believes in him or herself. That's the difference. The object of your faith. You know, if you're driving your car around in Dallas and you turn a corner and you have to cross over the dark tracks... Imagine you do that and the guard gate, you know, the, the red dinging lights and the guard gate is up and it seems safe, but, but suddenly you realize that thing is malfunctioned. It's not doing its job because I'm about to cross the tracks and there's a train bearing down on me at 50 miles an hour. What am I going to do? What are you going to do at that moment? Well, you're going to react in faith and push your gas pedal down to the floor and try to accelerate and get out of the way. And at that moment, you're putting great faith in a lot of different things that you can't see. You're putting faith in all kinds of parts, mechanical parts and processes in your car that you're assuming, maybe, hoping, certainly having faith is going to get you out of the way of that train bearing down. And the difference is this. Mostly what you're putting faith in is what's under the hood, right? And if you're driving a Ford Mustang GT with a 5-liter V8 and 400 horsepower under the hood, you're probably in pretty good shape. You're going to get off those tracks before the train comes. But if you're driving a Chevy Spark, no offense to the green-minded out there, but if you're driving an electric car with a one-liter electric box that's probably built more for ironing pants than it is for driving a car, and I don't know where they put the engine in a car like that. Is it in the glove box or is it under the hood? I don't know. But if you're driving that, then you're in trouble. It ain't going to help, right? You can have all the faith in the world when you push that accelerator down. It's not going to make a difference. Because the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has faith and the other one doesn't. They both do. But it's the object in which they have faith. Faith comes from these three powerful words from God. Let their B. So gospel faith is, it comes from those things, but gospel faith is then for countless ordinary people. And this is where he begins to go in Hebrews 11, of course. In verse 2 he says, For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now the people of old, all those Old Testament Israelites, right? All those Old Testament Israelites who could count on heaven because they offered all the right animal sacrifices at the right times. Right? No. All those Old Testament Israelites who could count on heaven because they obeyed the Ten Commandments just right. No. All those Old Testament Israelites who could count on heaven because they came from the right side of the tracks. No. There were no heroes in the Old Testament. Do you know that? There are no heroes in the Bible except for Jesus himself. God's the only hero there. The people that this writer begins to list out were people who had nothing special to offer. Abel and Enoch, Noah and 
Abraham and Moses and Rahab the prostitute? How did she fit in there? That kind of brings your view of Moses down a little bit, doesn't it? They're all on the same ground. They're just ordinary people who need commendation from above. And that's what they get. Why were they commended, does he say? Why were they praised and congratulated? Why are they to receive what God promised? Why? Because they believed what God had said. That's all. That's all. Being moral is not what makes you a Christian. Having something special to offer doesn't make you anything. What makes you a Christian is gospel faith. And he explains that that matters because gospel faith endures as well. I mean, we saw it last week. What did he say to his friends in this letter? He, he, he said to the, these Roman Hebrew Christian friends, look, don't throw away your confidence. It has a great reward. But you need endurance to get there. Well, you, where will you get that endurance? And he gives them an answer that you know, maybe they didn't like and maybe we don't like either. He says, my righteous one will live by faith. Where will you get the endurance? He says, live by faith. Gospel faith is not imagining that things don't exist. Things that don't exist. It's not imagining that they are. Gospel faith is not going to Disneyland. Gospel faith is not passively letting go of intellectual capacity either. Christian, look, you've been called to think. God gave you a brain in your head. Use it. Observe and see what He's done. You can't comprehend it all. But gospel faith doesn't require you to let go of that. It calls you to use it. Gospel faith is not unrealistically expecting what you just wish were true either. Rather, gospel faith is simply the resting of your soul in what God himself has already promised. It requires that you observe. It requires that you think and understand Gospel faith requires that you decide that you are convicted and persuaded of what you can't even see. And gospel faith requires that you, with assurance, commit yourself into the hands of your Maker. His powerful words make it so. And it isn't for heroes. It's for ordinary people, just like you and just like me. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would grant to us faith. Would you open our eyes indeed, Lord? Would you grant that we might recognize and believe what it is that you have given to us in Jesus? Would you cause us, Lord, to walk in faith not out of fear, not out of concern about what the world might think of us if we do, but out of recognition that you made us that you made all things and that you call us to follow after you, would you enable us to do that by faith and for the glory of Jesus in his name. Amen.